So with that, we do. We return to Matthew's gospel. And, of course, last week we saw Jesus' death. And the Roman cry out, this truly must be the Son of God. And next, we will be in chapter 28, shortly, where we have the resurrection. But before we take that full step there, we have to take a half step, and that's where we are this morning. And the title I have is, Can I Get a Witness? What we see is the great theme of our text is the Lord is preparing these witnesses, these women in particular, to be testimonies, testifiers to the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Which calls to my mind to think about faithful witnesses, this account of her brother who merely overheard some faithful, believing sisters speaking about Christ, and it's what the Lord used to prompt him to be converted. He speaks of it this way. Upon a day, the good providence of God called me to Bedford to work at my calling. He was a tinker or a metal worker. And as he was going, he says, in one of the streets of that town, I came where there were three or four women sitting at a door in the sun, talking about the things of God. And now being willing to hear what they said, I drew near to hear their discourse, to overhear what they were talking about. Their talk was about a new birth, the work of God in their hearts, as also how they were convinced of their miserable state by nature. They talked how God had visited their souls with His love in the Lord Jesus, and with what promises they had been refreshed and comforted and supported against the temptations of the devil. But in the end, John Bunyan confessed, even as he listened over hearing their conversation, he said, But I must say, I heard but understood not for they were far above out of my reach. Nevertheless, it was in no small part these, their spiritual conversation, their testimony of these faithful, but now to history, anonymous women, and even to John Bunyan, he never figured out who they were. But just overhearing their conversation about their relationship with Christ, that prompted Bunyan to say, that's what I want. And so it urged him to seek after Christ in the Scriptures, to know Christ and know the Gospel, to be converted eventually, and to have faith and to be changed drastically and to then serve, eventually he would as a pastor who endured prison and persecution and would go on to write the most famous Christian book in English, Pilgrim's Progress. But Bunyan's faithful witness in ministry began by overhearing three or four now anonymous women just faithfully speak about their faith in Christ. Maybe they didn't even know that he was listening in. But who knows all the ways that we could be a faithful witness for Christ and what the impact that might have even for generations if we will just faithfully live out our faith. And that means open our mouth to speak about Jesus. And our text this morning focuses on two women in particular, and we are going to see how God places them so strategically, preparing them then to be the first witnesses of the full gospel. And what I mean by that is all the essential parts, Jesus' death for sin, they see it, Jesus' burial, they see it, and then they're going to be the first to see Him resurrected. He is preparing them to be witnesses for this moment. And from this too, we can take some pointers and helps how we ourselves might be faithful witnesses to Christ. So that's the word for us this morning. Prepare yourself to be a faithful witness to the power of Jesus' death and His resurrection. Prepare yourself to be a faithful witness to the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we're going to see three ways 
that we can prepare to be a faithful witness. And it begins like this. How are we to be a faithful witness first? Watch and testify to the truth. Verses 55 and 56. From these just brief two verses, we start to uncover the start of what makes a faithful witness for Christ. And it begins with, you got to see something. You have to observe something. You have to come to know something. you got to know the truth. And namely, we see here the truth about Jesus Christ. We find it here with this, these women as our text opens, and they are watching. They're watching everything unfold, but from afar. They've been seeing what's been happening to Jesus. And so, by way of a summary and reminder, what have we seen as we've watched with them, so to speak, as we've gone through Matthew's gospel, as we've been tracking Jesus' journey to the cross? What have we seen? We, we were there in Gethsemane, and then we saw his trial, and we saw the abuse. We saw him go before Pilate. We saw the exchange with Barabbas, so he took Barabbas' place on the cross. We saw Jesus scourged. We saw his back flayed open in the scourging, and then he was smacked, and he was mocked and he was beaten, and he was struck, and then he was nailed to the cross, where then he cried out. We looked at this last time. He cried out, it is finished, because it's done. He did it. He actually accomplished salvation for all who trust in him, saving sinners by his death, such that where we ended last time, the veil was torn, the ground was shook, and the Roman confessed, truly, he must be the Son of God. That was verse 54. Now we come to our text, verse 55, and we discover that though Jesus was deserted by his closest disciples, remember principally Peter, but all of the disciples, you strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, they ran, but not all of them. There were a few watching it all from afar. Verse 55. Matthew 27, 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance. They were watching it all. The whole time, they were taking it all in. They evidently loved Jesus, didn't they? Such that they couldn't take their eyes off Him. They couldn't look away. Now, they couldn't get close either, and we're not sure exactly why. Maybe it was for fear lest they be abused too, or shamed, or mocked. They had to keep a distance in the end, but nor could they turn away, and so they watched. Now, but who were they? Who were these women? Well, we keep reading. Look at Matthew 55 again and following. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, that's the northern part of Israel, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, or excuse me, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So we have three women listed that were watching this all from afar. These are preparing to be the witnesses of the resurrection. And first we have Mary Magdalene. Now, you've probably heard that name before, but you might not know where. But if you're reading in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time we encounter Mary, first time we hear about her. Some wonder, though, who she is. They wonder that Mary Magdalene might be the repentant prostitute, if you recall, from Luke chapter 7, but that's merely conjecture. We're not exactly sure. But we do hear about Mary clearly in Luke chapter 8, that Mary had been tormented and even possessed by some seven demons, but Jesus rescued her, delivered her, and from that point she couldn't stop following Him, tailed Him everywhere. 
So first you have Mary Magdalene. And next, Matthew lists another Mary. This is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, which, best we can tell, this is probably actually Jesus' mother, Mary. And we correlate this if we remember Jesus' ministry back in Nazareth, his hometown. Do you recall what happened there? Remember, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. His hometown didn't receive him so well. Remember this? They disregarded him. So when they heard him teaching, they were shocked, but not into then following his teaching. They began questioning him. Where did this man get wisdom in these mighty works? Then we hear this, verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Familiarity bred contempt. They couldn't believe that the Jesus they had seen grown up and believing as they knew this family that this was the Messiah. But in their questions and in their disregard, they know that Mary had other sons, namely these brothers, James and Joseph, Jesus' half-brothers, so to speak. And sure enough, back to Matthew chapter 27, that's how this Mary is identified as the mother of James and Joseph. Very likely, we're looking at Mary, the mother of Jesus, which, of course, we know also, looking at John's gospel, she was there. And then we have a third woman mentioned here, back to Matthew 27. We have the mother of the sons of Zebedee. You guys remember her? She seems to be pretty bold. We were introduced to her as she came up to Jesus and was like, hey, listen, do me a favor and make my sons, James and John, you know, a couple of your key disciples, give them seats of honor in your kingdom. And we know more about her if we look into the other Gospels. You look into Mark's Gospel, her name appears to be Salome. And when we compare it further with John's Gospel, we figure out that she is probably actually Mary's sister. That is, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so this would make Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that would make her Jesus' aunt on his mother's side. Which maybe accounts for her boldness, right? Jesus... Nephew, listen, do me a favor. You got your cousins, right? They're on the inner circle. Let's just get this all done now. Make them on the right and left in your kingdom. And that could be. But the point is, with all three of these women, each of them were very close to Jesus, some related to him, and clearly they loved him. They served him. They followed him. They tailed him wherever they went. Such that they are watching him. They journeyed specifically from Galilee. Why are they here in this moment to watch him? Because they've journeyed from Galilee, from the north, where they were from, not merely for the Passover. They've journeyed to minister to Jesus. Look then at verse 55 again. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Ministering here simply is the word serving. It's the word we get deacon from. You remember we installed a deacon last week. We talked about how the deacons are those officers in the church set up to particularly care for the physical needs of the congregation so that the spiritual need and responsibility that the gospel goes forth without hindrance or other distraction. And these two ministries to the physical needs, to the spiritual, must work together if the gospel is going to go forth. And I was struck by this in a fresh way many years ago when... 
I was on a mission trip to Africa. This was when I was 20. So I was a young theology student. I was inflamed with passion for God. I wanted to see the nations worship our great Christ. So I'm on a short-term mission trip to the country of South Africa. And as we were there about a month, three weeks of our ministry there, my team conducted a gospel outreach to a far-off small village. We had to cross rivers. There was not even really dirt roads to get there. You get the idea. And as we showed up there, we would go hut to hut to preach the gospel, to talk to people about Christ, and then we would be inviting them to a, a tent gathering in the evening where we'd gather them all together and also, again, preach the gospel, calling them to Christ. But I'll say, as I already alluded to, our living conditions were a bit rustic there. Uh, we weren't put up in a hotel, certainly a hotel that had any kind of restaurant. Uh, we didn't really have shelter. We were in tents, sleeping outside for weeks. There was no running water. There was no electricity. We were basically camping the entire stay in that village. Now, one of the ladies, the young ladies, fellow college student on my team, she offered to stay back at the camp while we would go in our afternoon evangelism outings. And I'm sad to confess it, but in my immaturity and in my self-righteousness, I initially just assumed, oh, maybe she's kind of scared of the evangelism stuff. You know, maybe she doesn't like the hard stuff, and so she's going to skip out on that so she can go do whatever she's going to do in the camp. What a fool I was, and how arrogant, because what was she doing? As we were off, she was prepping all of the meals in the afternoon so that when we got back in the afternoon, we actually had something to eat and so we could get ready for the evening service to then preach the gospel, which if she had not been doing all that wet prep and work for us, that wouldn't happen. Here's the point. There would have been much less gospel work, even word work, evangelism work done in that village if it were not for her faithful service. Praise God for that. But her service is essential in that way. And these ladies knew that as well, looking back to now Matthew's gospel. Because actually we read about Mary of Magdalene. She went around everywhere with Jesus, ministering to him, meeting needs, providing, trying to free up a way so that he could minister in his way. We read about this in Luke chapter 8. You can listen or you turn there quickly. But let me just read a couple of verses for you. This is the way it opens in Luke 8. It says, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. He's preaching. That's what he's out to do. And the twelve are with him. But who else was with him? Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, who had, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, and Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. But what did these ladies do? Who provided for them out of their means. What were they doing? They, they were freeing up Jesus and the apostles that they might actually go out and preach the word. Because they would not have been able to do so otherwise. They served in that way as patrons or sponsors. Again, the gospel word ministry can happen. And such provision is essential. That's what these faithful women saw. That's why they came down from Galilee. That's why they came to serve. They came down, though, little did they know, to witness to Jesus' death. And that would surprise them. They weren't expecting this, even though he'd taught on it many times. Nevertheless, even though it was a surprise to them, God was behind the whole thing, wasn't he? 
You see, he, in effect, brought them down to prepare them to be his witnesses. He put in their hearts the affinity for Christ to meet and serve him in these ways. So they were tailing him everywhere, but so God was ordaining so they could see what's going to happen. To then observe and then one day testify to Jesus' death and then his resurrection. Because note in our text that that's principally why they're here, despite their intentions. Because note in our text how it's bracketed. It begins and ends with looking at these watching women. Our text this morning is chapter 27, verses 55 through 61. Look at how it's bracketed about these women who watch. So verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance. And then go down to verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. They were watching. They were seeing exactly where Jesus was being put and buried. They knew right where the tomb was. And this was very important because the next time we encounter those women at that tomb, drop your eyes down to chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And of course, what did they find there? It opened and nobody home. What's going on here? God was showing these women the truth. He was preparing them for this moment and preparing them to receive the truth, to then see the truth, and to then go out and testify to the truth. Because as you see it, as they then see this truth, the reality of the empty tomb, they're commissioned and then sent out to speak it. Look at verse 7 of chapter 28. The Lord's angel sends them, then go quickly and tell his disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. And then when they see Jesus, the women get to see Jesus, verse 10, Jesus commissions them to speak about him. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. God's plan had ordained that these two women would be the first to hear and see the greatest news and to then preach and tell the greatest message ever given that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Now with that said, we can't jump to too many conclusions without taking in all that the Scriptures teach about namely men and women, especially in our day. But it's very clear in Scripture, there are such things as male and females, and they're not the same, and nor are they interchangeable. Even in the church, men and women have particular roles. Paul is so clear about this, the apostle in the New Testament. Men still have the role to, in particular, lead the church, exercise authority in the church, especially through teaching the Scripture. Conversely, women are command, commanded to not teach or to have authority over a man in church. 1 Timothy 2.12, and it's just really clear. At least the implication would then be one thing, women are not to be elders and pastors. But that doesn't mean, nevertheless, evidently here, that doesn't mean you or any of us, male or female, whatever we are, if we believe in Christ, that doesn't mean you can't witness and testify and speak about Christ, this gospel message. Because we see it here first with the first witnesses, the first testifiers, the first gospel speakers to say, He is risen, the tomb is empty. They're women sent on mission by Jesus. And interestingly, who are the first people they're supposed to go tell? All the leaders of the church, the apostles. And 
As we then turn to the book of Acts, think about this, tracing the different women that the Lord had used to advance the gospel in the church. Consider how Priscilla and Aquila, it's interesting, isn't it, that Priscilla, the wife, is always mentioned first, but how they instructed mighty Apollos in the gospel, that he would be a more faithful and effective preacher. Or as you continue to walk through the book of Acts, too, you have many women ministering in various ways, however they can serve, so that the gospel and the word goes forth. Whether it was Dorcas and her generosity and care that clothed so many of the needy around her, or whether it was wealthy Lydia, who housed Paul and cared for the, also of his entourage so they could be faithful ministers of the gospel there in Philippi, caring for them to free them up for ministry. Or whether it's just even through also regular hospitality, like with John Mark's mother in that fabulous story. You remember this? Peter was put in prison, and an angel comes and breaks him out, And as Peter comes out of prison, where's he going to go? He knows the church is praying. Where are they having the prayer meeting, so to speak? Well, of course, at John Mark's mother's house. So he goes right there. She was known for hosting such meetings like this for the church to pray. And so he knew precisely where to go in Acts chapter 12. Where will I find the church? They're praying for me. Of course, they're praying this time of night at John Mark's mother's house. That's where I'll go. Now, with that, I trust you mothers would not feel slighted to be referred to as your mother's son. It's interesting how that happens, even in this text, let alone in Acts. That is, you could ask the question, well, why didn't Peter, why didn't it say that Peter went to Patricia's house, or whatever her name was, whatever John Mark's mother's name was? Why is she called John Mark's mother? Well, at least, John Mark was quite well known and an effective minister of the gospel, But understand, even with him, guess what? Behind him was first what? A godly mother who had a standing and place in the church because she had faithfully raised him and trained him up in the ways of faith. To then be one day now a leader of the gospel and in the church. That was no small role that she played in the health of the church in raising a child to love and now serve Jesus. And that's no small role today. What a glorious role that is. Praise God for godly mothers, for their tears for us, for their prayers for us, for their cares for us, their provisions for us. Truly, as the gospel goes forth, we see you couldn't do it without mothers like that. And so together, we as the church... We have to play our part, whoever we are, however we've been gifted, play our part that we as the church can tell and testify to the truth of the gospel, however we have opportunity, the truth that he died for our sin, that he was so dead he had to be buried, and then he rose from the dead. And that message was passed down to us first by these faithful women of God. So again, whatever you're gifting, you don't have to be some great speaker or teacher or debater But whatever you must do, in Christ you must see the truth, so to speak, see the truthfulness of it, and testify to it. Observe the gospel and tell it out to others. What you've seen, tell others what you've seen the risen Christ do in forgiving sinners. Maybe it's forgiving you and changing you, or you know others in the church, or maybe it's your friends in the church who Christ has changed. Testify to that, that there's a risen Jesus that forgives and changes. This is our call. Watch the risen Christ at work in the church, and then be a faithful witness about it. Second, how do we prepare to be a faithful witness? You need to find the courage to identify with Jesus. Verses 57 and 58. 
to be a faithful witness, of course, you need to first muster the courage to identify to stand with Jesus, even when it's costly. And that's the example set out for us by a very different character than we've seen with these women. We have this man, Joseph of Arimathea. And what defines him in particular is we find out he is rich. We're introduced to him in verse 57. It reads, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. And of course, his wealth is going to prove quite important because he's stepping up in last minute to provide an honorable burial for Jesus, especially quite quickly before sundown. Because we know from John 19, as you compare there, the Jews didn't want these cursed individuals. Remember, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. They didn't want these guys, these cursed fellows hanging on the cross as you go on to the Sabbath. So they had to get the guys down off the cross by sundown. Now, as they hastily get them off the cross, you can be sure they're not going to be given a nice burial. Actually, the Romans typically would not permit a burial to be given to somebody who's crucified at all. Their intention was have you hang there and rot there. But in a Jewish land, because of all of their sensitivities about purity laws and so forth, criminals could be given a burial, but it would be a criminal's grave or crypt, a place of dishonor. Surely that's what happened to those who were crucified with Jesus. But on a rare occasion, you could have an advocate, a family member maybe, who comes forward and asks the governor for the body of the condemned. But unless you were someone of great significance, don't even think about trying to approach the governor and ask. And more than this, if the criminal had been condemned as a terrorist and a rebel, saying he was a king when he wasn't to oppose Caesar, don't even dream of asking to get his body to bury him. And yet, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, he's able to get an audience before Pilate. Well, what else do we know about him from the other Gospels? What can we learn looking there about this Joseph? He's from Arimathea, which is only some 20 miles from Jerusalem. Though it appears now that he likely resides in Jerusalem, and that's probably because of his responsibilities there. We hear this about him in Mark 15, verse 43. tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, quote, was a respected member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the council of elders that led all of Israel. And they would do so in Jerusalem, so that required him to be nearby in Jerusalem often. He probably lived there. Not only was he a member of the ruling council, but we also find, and this is somewhat surprising, that he followed Jesus' teachings. We read that in Matthew 27, verse 57. It notes that he was a disciple of Jesus. Or more literally, it says that he was discipled by Jesus. Jesus had taught this man, instructed him in his teaching and his ways. And in some way, Joseph had followed him, but we see only so far. Because to this point, Joseph had kept his affinity for Jesus and Jesus' teachings a secret. He tried to be, if it were possible, a secret disciple. John in his gospel speaks about Joseph like this, verse 38 of John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly so for fear of the Jews... 
See, Joseph was a pretty important guy in the Jewish world. He was rich. He had lots of money. He had a lot of influence. He served on the most prestigious and influential board among all of the Jews in the world. And yet, he was drawn in by the teaching of Jesus. He was drawn to the truth of it. And surely, like we were, he was convicted by it, especially as Jesus so ruthlessly and rightly condemned self-righteousness. But also, he was attracted to it because he saw grace in it. The grace that only Jesus could extend. So he was attracted and he followed it, but only so much and only, as you could say, at an arm's length. And again, it mentions he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews because he knew they would reject him if he followed Jesus. He would lose his position. He would lose probably his income. He would lose respect. He'd lose security. He'd lose all support that he'd ever known, all if he identified with Jesus. And to him, that cost had been too high. And so what did he do? He compromised his faith, trying to hide it. But then something happened. Watching Jesus deceitfully captured, watching him wrongfully accused, watching him unjustly condemned, watching him horribly mocked, watching him brutally killed, that was all too much. He must do something if he could. And the thing he did was to now side with Jesus, even though he's dead, is to ask for his body to give it an honorable burial. Look at the way. I mean, this was risky. Mark puts it like this, Mark 15, 43. Joseph of Arimathea took courage and went to Pilate and asked for his body, but he took courage, it says. This was risky. He knew this would cost him. Cost him, as we talked about, a societal standing. And yet it was that very standing that gets him an audience before Pilate. But then even more risk. What if Pilate wouldn't give it over? Or might Pilate then turn on Joseph as he had on Jesus? And of course, what would the rest of the Sanhedrin think of him? If you think today's cancel culture is bad, you know, through social media and so forth, try the ancient Near East, okay? where everybody knows everybody, and they knew all your parents and your grandparents, and they did well at holding grudges for generations. He'd be forfeiting everything in an earthly sense. But he knew he would be gaining Christ, even though Christ is dead. But you see, and we see the example here, it's never too late to do the right thing, if you still can. He did the right thing before God. He publicly sided with Jesus as best he could. And he said, I will do so, come what will. God, you will handle it. And so he stood with the truth, the truth that Christ had preached. But that's the crucial component of being a faithful witness then. You've got to open your mouth. You've got to speak up. You have to identify publicly with Jesus. You cannot have a private secret faith. It's got to be a faith that's public, that's known, not just assumed by others. We're in Matthew 27, of course, but as you skip ahead to the Great Commission, the end of the book, what's the truly first step of being an actual disciple? It's getting baptized, which means publicly confessing your faith in Jesus. We read it there, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And how do you become a disciple? But by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. If you say or you think, oh, I believe in Jesus, I trust Him, but you haven't been baptized, Jesus says, well, that's where you need to start. Stand with me publicly. Go through baptism. 
Now, even as I say that, let's admit it. Today, in our situation, in our church culture here, that's not hard. It's not too risky. We had a baptism recently. What happens? People cheer you on. <laughs> they clap for you. They congratulate you. They say they're going to pray for you. And they do. And they, we care for them. It's such a, rejoice, a joy, joyous time, right? Well, try doing that at your VCU campus. How's it going to go then when you publicly side with Jesus? Many of us know we've been down there. Or think about your public high school. You stand for Jesus there. What's going to happen? It might cost you. Or maybe it's even at your Christian school who don't treat too kindly Christians who actually live out their faith with boldness and assurance and confidence. And that says nothing of walking into your workplace, your neighborhood, your kids' sports teams. But you cannot be a faithful witness if you keep it all inside. Some have so cleverly said, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. No, you preach the gospel by preaching and giving words. That's what it means. People do not get saved by just a courteous smile. They get saved by hearing the word of Christ. They won't hear it unless we open our mouth. Which means, God be gracious, give us the courage to stand publicly with you. They will not encounter a merciful God through a courteous smile, a quiet life, a non-judgmental, easygoing persona. They need more than that. They need a message. And Christ has given it to us. The gospel, the good news. He's died for sinners. He was buried. That's how dead he was. But he's living now because he rose. May we publicly identify with Jesus as he publicly identified with us in our sin on the cross. Take courage to stand with him. Finally, and briefly here, how are we going to be faithful? We must trust in his promise and his providence. Verses 59 to 61. The, the final step in being a faithful witness is that you have to trust in his promise and his providence, the way he's working in history. And we return to Joseph of Arimathea so I can show you what I mean here. So let's read the verses, verses 16, 59 and 60 in particular. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, speaking of the body, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And let me draw your attention to a couple details here. First, you have the clean linen shroud. No, that is not the shroud of Turin. Okay, just put that thought out of your mind, Google it later, and then know it's not true. Next, what does this mean then, this clean linen turbot, tr- excuse me, this clean linen shroud? This is what you did for somebody who is honorable. This is not what you do for criminals. So him being wrapped in this linen showed that he was respected, at least in the eyes of some. Furthermore, spread in the cloth would be many spices and aloes. John's gospel recounts for us how Nicodemus, who was a fellow council member, joins Joseph here and drops some 75 pounds of spices all over Jesus' body. This is no longer just an honorable burial. This is a burial for a king. This is a burial for royalty. And then Jesus' body is set in a new tomb. This is a rich man's tomb at that, a very costly tomb with a rolling stone door. And that it had not been used before also shows the expense and what an honor this was. But most of all, what's the significance of this? 
It's fulfilling just precisely what the Scriptures have foretold. So often we've been going back to Isaiah 53, haven't we? And we return there because we find now this key verse, another prophecy fulfilled about Jesus. Here we are, Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The New English translation captures the sense of the Hebrew grammar perfectly when it reads, They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb. Again, that's surprising, that's shocking. But does that not so perfectly picture what's going on at the cross and even his burial? The other two criminals crucified with Jesus, surely they were thrown in a nameless hole or just put aside to rot away, but not Jesus. He was killed like a criminal, but he wasn't buried like one. Why? Because God in his mercy intervened in the heart of this man that he'd be put in a rich man's tomb, wrapped and anointed like the great king and savior he was. And Isaiah tells us again and again then that his death was a death of sacrifice, isn't it? A death for us, a death for our salvation. Again, to reprise Isaiah 53, verse 12, the end of that glorious song, he poured out his soul to death. But in so doing, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So here's the point, tying that together. His death, his burial, and a burial just this way, as God predicted, proves he is Isaiah's suffering servant. And that proves he wasn't dying for his sin, but he was dying for yours if you trust him. It's all true. It's all coming to pass, just as he promised. Just as Jesus himself promised. But how could that be? How do things like this happen? It's like someone's in control of all of this. It's like God can tell the future and bring the future to pass. That's what we call providence. Sometimes God can bring the future to pass by breaking into history in supernatural ways. That doesn't often happen, but the Bible records it when it does. Things like when he split the Red Sea, or he made the sun stand still, or he moved shadows the wrong way, or he made dew appear just on a certain place and not others. Those are miracles, miraculous interventions. That's a way that God can accomplish his will. But most of the time, and in our lives today, God controls things by his providence, by his masterful orchestration of all these free creatures that they end up doing what they want, so they think, but they are, but they're actually doing precisely also what he wants, his will. Doing exactly what he promised. So not one of his promises will fall. So how does that relate to me and being a witness for Christ? If in his providence he's controlling everything. Well, you know what that means Those people that God has put into your life, they're not there by accident. Your neighbors, co-workers, family members, they've been introduced to you, a Christian, a gospel bearer, and he's called you to speak out about him to others. Now, there's a place, certainly, must be, for leaving this country, seeing Christ exalted among the nations. But do not neglect first the mission field right before you, maybe right under your own roof. He didn't bring them under your roof or into your life or into your home or into your workplace by accident. 
And maybe it was precisely so that you could be a witness of our great Christ, about the Savior, about the good news, that He died for sinners like them, so dead that He had to be put in a tomb, but then now, as we'll see next week, He lives to forgive all that trust in Him. He will keep all of His word. He will raise the dead. He will raise all and forgive all that trust in Him one day in the end. So let us be heralds of that good news. May we be found faithful. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we pray you would be merciful to us, that we would be faithful. Forgive us where our fear has kept us astray or aside or away. Forgive us, too, where our fear, we remember Peter, and we've stumbled and we've maybe even denied you. Forgive us. We thank you that you're merciful and that you use broken vessels but strengthen us to be faithful stewards of this gospel you've given, to be faithful witnesses and messengers, to testify to the world that not how great we are, but we have a great Savior of sinners. One who died for our sin, was buried, but now he lives. And it's in his name alone we pray. Amen.